You know we're looking a little thin right here. Why is it that when we come to church, we look to fill the back rows first? And then we go to a sporting event or a, or a concert or a school event. First seats are taken first. But when we come before God, we're like, don't look at me. Don't look my way. I wonder if it's because we have this false sense of identity. And this false sense of identity comes from the concept and idea that we are worthless, or not, not worthless, but we are unworthy. Because it's not fair that somebody had to pay for my, my sins, right? It's not fair that God died in my place. It's not fair. Because justice would have been for me to die and pay for my own sins. But I can't save myself, so I needed Christ to come and die for me. Amen. But because we have a tendency to say that we are unworthy, we also take that same first four letters, worth, and tie it and tie that to my lack of value. Where if I'm unworthy, then I'm, I am worthless. And if I'm worthless, it's because I'm a sinful human being. Therefore, I, sh- I should not have to commit to going all the way because it's just not fair at all. I don't know, maybe I'm not making any sense but I like to encourage you as you come to church as you approach God one of the things that I we talked about at prayer meeting this week is when Jesus says pray in my name it means that he expects us to approach him with big asks because he gave his son for us Therefore, your life was paid with another life. Your worth, your value is worth the life of somebody else. So you should not be ashamed. You should not feel worthless. You should not feel that you're unworthy because Jesus is, died for you. You are worthy of his grace. So why do we still approach church as not something that is worthy of our commitment? I don't know. Just a few questions I've had in my, in my mind lately. And um, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm glad you all are here. Amen. I'm glad you all are, are worshiping with us. Uh, if you find yourselves at a table that you uh, would like to move to join a table that has more people so you can interact, feel free. If you, if you, you're welcome to. And if you feel like you don't want to move, you're welcome to stay put. There's no pressure here, none whatsoever. Before I begin this message for today, I'd like to invite you to pray with me uh, as we are about to dive into God's word. Father God, What we are about to see 
may not feel very good. But Lord, I just want to remember that what we are about to see is also a revelation of who you are. And I pray that as we open your word together, may your spirit lead us. May it lead us to see a God who loves, a God who saves, a God who cares, and a God who pays attention to our very needs, to our shortcomings, to our, our fallings. And so I pray that you be with us this morning. Through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we are going to jump into the fourth. We're, we're, we're coming, we're more than halfway through, to our fourth church, the church of Thyatira. Can you all remember what all the, the, the first three churches we talked about, who they were? The first one was? Ephesus. Okay. Can you remember, or somebody just shouted out, what was wrong with them? They lo- no, they weren't loveless. They lost their first love that resulted in them doing work without love. They loved what they did, so they weren't loveless, but they forgot their, lo- their first love. Second, second church, the persecuted church, Smyrna. What did they do? Or what was wrong with them? Nothing. They were under persecution. Why were they under persecution? Because they followed Jesus. That's as simple as simple as you can get. Okay? They followed Jesus and therefore they suffer persecution. Okay? But there was nothing wrong, per se, with them. But what about the third church? The compromising church. Pergamum. What was wrong with them? I just gave you. What was wrong with them? They compromised what? Their relationship? Okay. Now let's get to the good part. What was promised to each of these churches? Let's see uh, if you catch on. If you begin to catch on, there's a pattern going on here. What's the first reward that was given to the Ephesus? There were, to him who overcomes, that I will grant with him to do what? He'll have ac- access to something. What is that? The tree of life. Hmm, keep that. Hold on to that. The second one, what was the, what was the reward? It was n- not death. Not death. Obviously eternal life. So, okay. What are we seeing now in the third church? What was there? They're going to be fed. From what? More specifically, the manna, the hidden manna. Are you seeing a pattern? Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are like, huh? The pattern, tree of life. What happened at the beginning of time? Adam and Eve were denied access to the tree of life because they 
disobeyed God. They were given death. The second church was promised not to die, but to have everlasting life. So here's a promise, you know, as we as human beings, we look at history, and, and I mentioned, please, please sit at the tables, uh, and if you need chairs, we'll grab your chairs for you. Um, as human beings, we suffered the loss of, of access to the tree of life, and we were given death, but now this church is being persecuted, they're, they're being persecuted to death, and... Jesus is saying, I got you. Hold on to what you have, and you'll have access to eternal life. But as human beings, though, as, as we look at humanity across history, they left, they began to, they expanded, we had the flood happen in the book of Exodus, we had the, the, the enslavement of the Israelites, and then something happened. God opened the Red Sea for them and they walked through and then they started complaining. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. And God gave them manna. manna. And God provided them sustenance. So when we look at, at the rewards, it also mimics a pattern of our history as well. But also, each church reflects a point in history. And we said that because we as Adventists, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a, a mode of interpreting the Bible through a historicist perspective. What does that mean? We look at history and we see how all that fits together. And, and that's how we also approach pro, the prophetic books. So, the first, as it would help if I turned this on. The first church that we have is Ephesus. It covered a period of 31 AD to 100. What happened in 31? Jesus died on the cross. The initial phase of the Christian church. Then the church of Ephesus gave way to the church of Smyrna. And we look at the persecution that was taking place be, right around the 100, 101 through 313. This was when the Christians were being persecuted, but you may, may think to yourself, well, if, you, if you've read these uh, seven churches before, it's like, well, pastor, they're all being persecuted. Yes, for different reasons. They initially were not be willing to compromise their spirituality because of emperor worship. And then we have Pergamos, 313 to 538. What happened around the year 538? If, if those, how many of you here like history? Okay, what happened in 538 that's of significance? That was the formal establishment of the formal Christian church around Constantine. Actually, um, and so with these events, you have a formal now religious system that was taking place. And within this formal religious system, they were trying to unify all of the teachings of Jesus into a system. But when we look at history, Thyatira, from our understanding, covers a much longer perspective in history. It covers the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, 
And this is where we fall into a system of false doctrines. Having that into your, as a background information, now we can get into Thyatira and see what it really was. Because this was, if you have uh, subtitles in, or subheadings in your Bible, in my Bible it says this was the corrupt church. And we understand through history that there was a church that became corrupt during this time. At the time, there was only one major Christian church. I'm not going to get into that. But let's look at what the Bible says. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire in his feet like fine brass. So these things, says he who is the son of God. Now again, Thyatira is located, now we're making our way around all the way to Laodicea, and the next we have Sardis in Philadelphia. But this is the smallest of all of the churches. Thyatira was not significant by any means, but it was the smallest. It didn't have any value in terms of its size, influence, but it was there. God called them and called them out. Now, this is where it's located today. It's located in modern Ahisar. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Ahisar, Turkey. And this is where the church is located. I want you to pay attention to everything that's going on around here because this is the old church. Right around, if, you, if you're on that side, so this is, this is where the church was. This is the old system, old, old neighbor, neighborhood or the ancient part of the city. And it's important for you to understand how that looks from an aerial perspective. Because when you look, when you understand what it was known for. Thyatira was known because of its purple dye. There's another lady in the Bible by the name of Lydia in, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 14. She was known for selling purple dye. She made, historicists believe that she was a very wealthy woman and gave her house to be the church of that time. So Thyatira was known for its purple dye. There's so much associated with the color purple in the Bible, one of which, it's the color of royalty. But remember the picture I showed you earlier? Of See how everything is, is located and situated in squares? It's because everything that functioned around uh, the church or that time it focused around guilds what's a guild it's a trade so it was kind of like today we have unions right every we have labor unions for specific areas uh, we have 
players unions, we have uh, blacksmith unions, carpentry unions, uh, we have all sorts of, we have nurses unions, doctors unions, etc. I mean, so this is not a picture of back then. But I wanted to show you, because this illustrates, this is written in German or Bavarian, bakery. So when these particular guilds, they were set up around the town and there, and there was these identifying marks in, in, in these houses that these guilds represented a specific trade. So if you had a baker, you had a blacksmith, you had a carpenter, all of these, they were, they were, these were unions, so to speak, that people would go into and the social structure was in life was built around those guilds around the church at that time and so everything was functioned around that but the christians they would not join because of the type of feasts that they would be involved with emperor worship they would sacrifice to idols. And then they would consume the, those, those meats that were sacrificed to idols. And the Christians were like, no, we believe in one God. We believe in one individual who created us. And he died for us. And so they would not take part of it. So they would be persecuted, so to speak, for that, as we saw in the other churches. But more specific, there's a problem that is bigger than not participating in the guilds. Because the threat of the Christian church at that time came not from outside, not from the persecution of those that were on the outside, but it came from the threat of inside the church. Not out. There was a traitor among them. That traitor was a leader. Let's continue. I know your works. Tribulation. In poverty. And sorry, I'm reading the wrong, wrong verse here. These things says the Son of God who has a, 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 <clears throat> eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. This is all God... Jesus talking, by the way, the, the, the title Son of God only appears once in the entire book Revelation, and it's right here. The interesting part of this is that because when this was written, there was, there's a particular deity that was worshipped in Thyatira by the name of Apollos. He was the son of Zeus, who was considered the god of the universe. So now you see Jesus talking through John saying, I am the son of God. He's taking, he's countering exactly that counterfeit idea of that time, thinking that Apollo was this mighty God because he's the son of Zeus. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 none of that. I am the son of God. So remember what I said at the very, for those that have been here for the, since the, the, the beginning of our, our series, Jesus always reveals himself to you in a way that you understand, in a way that you're going to be able to relate with. And so now he's relating to the people of Thyatira saying, I am the 
Son of God. And I know your works, your love, faith, and service. Yeah. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Let me stop here real quick. In some of your translations, you may have the word endurance there. Love, service, faith, and patience or endurance. These are characteristics. The New Testament is filled with this idea of and concept that love and faith go together, but you know the result of faith is service. The result, excuse me, the result of love is service. The result of faith is endurance and patience. All these texts that you see there in your screen, if you'd like to do a study on them, please feel free to take a snapshot of it. In Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 2 Timothy and Philemon uh, 5, all these talk about the relationship that love and, and faith have. But the interesting part here is that the word service, which comes from serving, is not the one that we have service from a slave's perspective. That would be doulos in the Greek. The word that is service here is the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacons from in today's vocabulary. Service, because you are serving on behalf of others, that is diakonos, that is deacons. Okay? You're serving because you love others. But when you're doulos, you're a servant, you're serving because you have somebody over you of, in the position of authority. But the result of love is not, you don't, is not obedience because you have an authority figure over you, but it's obedience because you love to serve others and you love to serve God. They were known for this work, these works. And the Bible says, that just related here, that this church did much better works than the previous. The works are kind of expanding, right? These churches are getting better and better, per se, because of what the people are doing. However, just because you're doing good doesn't mean that you are good. Let me say that again. Just because you're doing good does not mean you are good. Many people I have encountered says, oh, I live, I, I try to be a good person. Good for you. Happy for you. But that doesn't mean you're good at all. The Bible has a very clear definition of what good is. And it's not you and I. It's Jesus. And so when we look at this, this church, it looks like it's, it has everything that a good church would look for. It has love. It has service. It has faith. It has patience. But they are rotten to the core. Or almost. 
as we will see. God had these things out. These things are great for you, but man, I find this against you. Let's go back to our, our, our reading. Nevertheless, I have, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel. Let me pause here real quick. I'm gonna follow, you guys are going to follow the reading here on the screens. Okay? The woman Jezebel is, is a, a, this is not, this is a figurative description. However, there was a prophetess there. We don't know who she was. We don't know what she was, whose wife she was, because in some Masoretic texts, it says that your wife Jezebel doesn't take away from, from, the, from, from the meaning, but it says the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. This, if you have kept up with us and been here, we, you have noticed that there's this common theme of seduction and sexual immorality going on. But this isn't a literal seduction in this context of Thyatira. Because... I will, I will show you here in a little bit. Sexual immorality is synonymous to a, a, uh, adultery is usually the figure that is used to describe our spiritual condition with Jesus in the Old Testament. I'll come, that, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's continue. And I gave her a time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. There is a lot to unpack here. So let's start again, as I said first, with unfaithfulness. Okay? Usually unfaithfulness is related to spiritual adultery or harlotry. And here are the texts that are associated with that. The book of Hosea is just filled with it. He describes about his wife being unfaithful to him. But I want to go back to the, to the way and the things that were described here. The idea is that there is judgment that is going to be pronounced on this church. More specifically on Jezebel, this prophetess, and her children. So if we're looking at her sexual immorality as symbolism to, to reflect the reality of spiritual unfaithfulness, then her children is also a result of those who believed in her teachings and followed her in her theory and in her theology. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to come 
and I'm going to eradicate her. But notice the language also. It said that I have given her time to repent, but she did not. Jesus will never pronounce judgment on anybody without giving the individual an opportunity to repent. Ever. But if you look at it and say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, let's look at that for a minute. How many times were the warning signs given? The warning labels came out and said, hey, you need to come back to me. Stop going over there. Don't do this. Don't have other idols. Don't sacrifice other people. Or I will come and I'm going to obliterate everyone. But he's like, yeah, but a God of love would never kill. Well, how many times does he have to remind people to, hey, don't do this? As a parent, how many times do you have to tell your child, don't touch that outlet plug. You're going to get shocked. And then they do. And you're like, I told you. Judgment is the consequences of actions. It's not the consequences of an evil God. You tracking? Judgment comes because of what I've done, not because of who God is. He judges because he's just and he's merciful and he's righteous. And so he expects us to follow suit. And he gives us plenty of opportunities to Repent. Remember what I talked about repent? is an about face. is to turn around. But these people are not. And in this particular church, somebody at some point, may have been John, we don't know, had given her the opportunity to repent, and yet she continues to do the same thing. Sounds like me. And you. When we choose to follow our own ideas. There are times when God steps in and, and he says, listen, you're, you're, you're not doing this right. You need to repent. You need to turn around. And, and, and sometimes when he, he speaks to us, he speaks to us in a way that is like, man, but that's not what... I believed in and then you go and you open your your Bible or somebody opens the Bible for you and teaches you something entirely different than you, what you're accustomed to believing and you're like really now I'm going to turn it over to you this will be our only round table this morning I think but I here's the question I have can you think of a time when you learned something from the Bible that contradicted your belief system and what was it can you let me give you a, a real quick example so don't take this and apply it to yours because i'm sure there are others when i was a little kid see i grew up with the real superman clark kent and the real Batman, Adam West. Well, it wasn't Clark Kent. It was um, Christopher Reeves. That was the real Superman. And so I had an idea that, you know, I can fly. Or 
I have these powers and, and these gadgets. And so the one thing that we believed in superheroes is that superheroes are eternal, so to speak. And they never die. And I remember... I remember under seeing my great-grandmother in her hospital bed or window waving at me. And that was the last time I saw her. And so I remember with this conflicting you know, reality of superheroes don't die. Yet, my great-grandmother was passing away. And I had this idea that when somebody dies, they'd go up into the heavens and they'd become like the stars, kind of like Lion King, if you've seen that. But then I learned something that the Bible taught me, which was the dead know nothing. They speak nothing. They see nothing. And I'm like, what? And I remember wrestling with that as an eight-year-old kid. So that's what, I, what this question is about. Can you think of a time when you learned something from the Bible that contradicted your worldview, your perspective? Share that with the people around your table. Go. had some time to converse here's what I'm looking for a couple of people that share their experience music their experience of what they went through as a result of that wow okay Go ahead, Regine. Hello, everybody. Um, I grew up uh, Pentecostal. So everyone that I knew went to church on Sundays. And after church, you hung out and you did whatever you wanted to do. And I was told that um, law was abolished. You didn't have to follow, you know, the Ten Commandments and everything else. So in most of my life, yeah, at the time, it was like that. Then when, my, when I met my husband, then we started talking about following the Sabbath. And I'm like, huh? So I went back. I had to go to the Bible and read over and over again and pray about it. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? Because that's not what I was taught at all that you didn't have to follow the Sabbath. That was over with, that was done. So that was my experience. How, how did you feel at first? I was angry. I was um, sad because pretty much almost everyone I knew were pretty much following the same thing. And I didn't know how I was going to change from that. 
to not go to church on Sundays. And I was afraid to tell my parents I didn't go to church on Sundays anymore. And I didn't know how they were going to take me not going to church on Sundays anymore and actually saying, Mom, I can't go and do this because it's Sabbath. So that was hard for me. So I had to pray a lot before I got baptized. Okay. All right. Wow, everybody's quiet. It's a quiet day. It is. No one likes to talk about feelings. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Ty, thank you. Well, mine isn't really like a belief system. Like it, it, it was like an aha moment. Sure. Um, growing up, you want to take charge and you want to do things your way and in your time. And um, just like graduating high school and going into college and things like that, I um, really thought that everything was in my hands. Um, but going back and reflecting on what the Bible says, that there's a season for everything, there's a season for growth, for um, mourning, for rejoicing. You kind of have to be like, okay, this is, this is in God's timing, this is in God's hands, and you grow up and you have to you know, go through life and experience certain things. And so that's my, that was my realization, that I always thought that it was in my hands and my moments and my time, but it's not like that. <laughs> so you were not in control is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. You know, I, I preface this exercise by giving you a belief system that we as Seventh Adventists uphold, which is the dead know nothing, the dead are there. Some of you ran with that, but the question is learn something, not necessarily a belief system. This illustrates perfectly that God works in so many ways in order to draw our attention back to him. It can be as simple as, you're not in control, to as the second coming of Jesus Christ. It can be that far in between. And, it can, and, and here's what I really appreciate of what Jesus has done in these seven churches. Because he has one thing that he tells every single church to do. What is that? No. Hold fast to what you already have. He does tell people to repent from their wicked ways, right? But when you are already searching, you have some truths that align with the, with the Bible, and he tells you, hold fast to what you have, in this case, till I come. Granted, we're talking about Thyatira, we're talking about a specific time in earth's history, we're talking about a specific church, but the language is across the board. And if you read ahead, you will find this. Hold fast to what you have. And, he, and here's, here's a break from the other three churches. Normally, before God says, but hold fast till I come, there is the last verse for this church, verse 29 says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Usually that precedes this, these statements of hold fast. In this case, it's reversed. Why? Because a lot of those people were following a false teaching. But here's what's interesting. 
God, Jesus, tells each and every one of them that even though they have followed, this Jezebel has followers, there are those who did not follow. So let's look at that a little bit. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces. Again, this is the judgment pronounced on those that follow the, the teaching of Jezebel. Like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I have given him the morning star. Jesus is promising each and every one of these churches a specific thing. So if we're looking at the reward based on how we've looked at history, first was what? Tree of life. Eternal life, not to face death. To have eat of the hidden manna. And now he's saying you're going to have the morning star. What were the people in Israel looking for? What, what was the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation looking for that was to come? Jesus, the Messiah. And so here in this particular, he's saying, I'm going to give you the morning star. I'm going to give you, now we see that in Revelation chapter um, 22, verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The reward is that Jesus himself would be with them. That they would have Jesus. But not only would they have Jesus, they would have the ruling authority along with Jesus and they would have that opportunity. You know when judgment comes for you and I, it comes because of works. Uh, and I'm not talking about righteous works. It comes because of when we do not fall in line with the Bible. When we choose to do our own thing. When we choose to neglect the word of God and say, ah, no, I believe this and that. I don't expect all of you to become perfect human beings overnight. And I don't think God does either. Because he understands that there's a process that we go through and that process is called conversion. We call that process also sanctification. There's another process called sanctification which is a process of learning each and every single day. But, you still, we still must hold fast to what we already have in order for us to continue to progress the things in which Jesus is revealing to us. In order for us to have Jesus, we need to not just to hold fast, but we need to follow the things that we have been learning. That we have to follow the things that he's been teaching us and not be worried about the consequences of the future. Why? Because he promised to be with us. He promised he would give us the morning star. 
He promised that we would have that same authority with him when he comes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What are you fighting with today that you are struggling to surrender your belief system in? Is there something that the Bible has revealed to you that God wants you to take that step forward for? But you are saying to yourself, eh, maybe not. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, mm, not quite ready. Let me assure you of this. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. Amen. You can come as you are. Amen. And in that process of you coming and you beholding, you become changed. It is that simple. Amen. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. That comes from what I was stating earlier. Our sense of worthlessness because we are unworthy of the sacrifice he gave to us. But in reality, we are worthy of his love because he, one, he created us and two, he gave his son for us so we can come to him and say, here I am. If you are struggling with that, if you are struggling with the idea and the notion that Jesus has, is calling you, you don't have to come as you are. That's the calling, is to come. That is the calling to behold. Not to wait until you line your ducks up in a row and say, okay, now I'm good to face God. I got news for you. That's not biblical. Never was. Never has been. Never will be. Because Jesus says, come as you are, and as you come, I will change you. As you come, and you behold, you become changed. Because you believe. Not because you did all these works. Remember, this church had all the great works yet they were not good. You can be a good person and still not be saved. You can have good works and still not be doing God's will. It comes down to a relationship with Christ. And as a result of your relationship, we look back and we saw the consequence of love is service. And you, as you serve, you increase your faith. And as a result of your faith, you'll have endurance and patience. I pray that this morning you will choose to love and recommitting yourself to Christ. Allowing him to take you as you are and say, Lord, here am I. I. I need to do things differently. I need to do things your way. Not mine. Is there somebody here who would like to say, don't raise your hands.
who would like to say, Lord, I need to recommit my life to God. I need to surrender. If this is you this morning, I invite you to pray with me. I'm gonna pray now before the, the, the band, uh, they sing blessings, and then I'm gonna pray again. But this particular prayer is for you who are struggling to surrender. It's for you who know that you need to do some things differently. This prayer is for you. So pray with me. Father God, You are the one who reads our minds and our hearts. You are the one who understands more than anyone where we are and where we find ourselves. But I pray, Father, that as you see those of us who are here this morning, we all, in some shape or form, have something that we must give up in order to follow you. Some of us may need to do an about-face altogether. Some of us may need to do an about-face on some, some things or others. But Lord, nonetheless, we all need to focus on you. And I pray that you will give us that strength to be able to follow your calling, your leading, knowing that you have promised us that you'd be with us and we would have you with us. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.